Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings. Welcome to the Corporate Majlis Podcast, where we chat with successful Muslims and learn about their journey in the corporate world. I'm your host, Ali, and each week I have a guest from the Muslim community. We discuss their successes, their challenges, and a lot more. My guest today is Ahmed. He tells me about how he moved to Australia from Bosnia and how he landed a gig in the recruitment industry where at one point he was asked to remove his first name from his CV so that he had a higher chance of landing a job. Today, he is a successful recruitment professional and has founded Maidan Archery Club Australia. I work for DigiTalent as a, as a principal uh, recruitment consultant in the technology space. I've always specialized within cyber and cloud, and I've been working almost a year with these guys. But prior to that, I've actually worked a lot longer with all of them. So the story goes that when I migrated to Australia in 95 from Bosnia, we came as refugees during the, the trouble uh, years over there. We were set down by my mum and dad. I've got two siblings, my brother, my sister, and they were both married at the time. So I had a brother-in-law and a sister-in-law that I treated as my own blood brother and sister. So our parents set us down and said, look, we lost everything that was materialistic. We had houses, we had land, we had money, gold, you name it. And it was all taken from us. The lesson that we learned is the only thing that people can't take from you is knowledge. So they set us down. They said, look, all of you have to finish school again. All of you have to go to uni. All of you have to invest in that which cannot be taken away from you. So my brother became a civil engineer. My sister at the time was a piano accordion player. She studied music, finished that and then ended up leaving it to study Masters of Teaching. My sister-in-law also teaching, and my brother-in-law uh, biology. I was a bit of a black sheep in the family. I ended up doing um, network engineering by trade, so that's my qualification. After I, I did my diploma in network engineering, I went and I gave my diploma to my dad. I said, I fulfilled my end of the bargain. I'm going overseas. I want to study languages. I had a job with IBM GSA. And I just didn't like the whole help desk sort of lab rat scenario. I like dealing with people. Then I went to Lebanon, studied languages, uh, studied a little bit of Sharia as well, and then moved back in 2007. In 2007, I got a job in, obviously I'm, I'm a Bosniak, so all, all, a lot of us are good with our hands. I got a job in industry, in the building industry. I was working, uh, installing windows and you know shower screens. And due to an injury in my sport, which at the time was Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I, I was in a tournament, I ended up tearing up my knee. And uh, I said, look, I, I, I can't last. I need to get out of the building industry. My father, who was a manager of several shops in Bosnia, he ended up being a butcher, became hands-on. My mom, she became hands-on after having several shops in, in Bosnia. As a designer, she became hands-on as a seamstress. She's probably my number one idol or role model in the business industry, pure entrepreneur to the core. She came to Australia and didn't know a word of English. A year later, she opened a shop in North Sydney. Talk about confidence. Uh, she got the rent. She did, like, she did everything. The people actually were concerned to rent out the shop to us because of the level of English that she had. 21 years later, she still has customers coming to her door from North Sydney to Edmondson Park, which is a testament to her work. With a torn knee, I was doing some measurements for my mom in her shop, and in walks one of the um, 
senior people of Sikh, uh, who was her customer at the time. So I'm, I'm there doing measurements. Of course, um, I start chit-chatting to her and we're, we're talking. I said, look, I'm, I'm looking to change my career. And uh, she goes, oh, that, uh, what do you want to do? You know, she's, she's an ex-recruiter herself. <laughs> and uh, I go, yeah, I wouldn't mind doing IT recruitment. You know, I've done networking. I've done languages. I think I'd be good at it. One of the main key motivators was to help Muslims. And that's, that's how I generally look at it. So speaking to, to this uh, lady in my shop, I said, look, if, if you get me a job in recruitment, I'm going to install a uh, hardwood floor in your, in your place um, free of charge. You know, you just buy the materials because she just bought a flat in, in Bondi. And I ended up doing that. So um, she goes, easy, yeah, I'll get you a job tomorrow. Full of confidence. I said, okay, let's see. Here's my CV. And she looked at one look at my CV. She goes, Ahmed. Hmm. Because I always put Ami. Everybody calls me Ami. She goes, Ahmed Ami Karat. And she said, Ahmed. Hmm. Can you do me a favor? I said, what is it? She said, um, take off Ahmed and just keep Ami Karat. I went, okay. So I did. And uh, I got a I got an interview at a boutique agency. Um, they said we would have offered offered you a role if it wasn't for your accent, because at the time I had a Eastern block. I, I used to talk a little bit like this, you know, like Eastern block, Bosnian country. And um, I said, oh, is that the only the only reason? He goes, yeah, because when when you're calling candidates, you want to be you got ten seconds to get their attention, and um, your accent may impede you. I said, give me three months, it'll be gone. And he goes, oh, great, you got the job. And uh, yeah, I learned a lot from him uh, and that company. Um, I ended up um, doing like amazing work there. I, I loved it. Um, but two years later, and um, you know, by this time, I knew the MDs or, or the owners' kids' names. I, I, I knew him so well that when he was on holiday doing a database migration, he left the the whole database in my hands. That's how much trust I had from him. By, by now, he knew who I was, where I'm from. Um, he knew my real name the moment he got my bank details. Um, but I, two years later, I asked him, I said, if, you had, if I had put Ahmed on my CV the first go, would you have hired me? And I mean, we knew each other now well. And then he had a long pause and he said, um, probably not. And that was, it was a very challenging um, experience, but he, to him, it wasn't kind of purely motivated by anything like Islamophobia or anything like that. He was looking at it from also a business point of view. He was assuming um, that other people w will not like that or that the clients or the candidates or anything like that, which is very unfortunate because in this day and age, you know, in the past, Muslims... You know, even the Kufar used to take Muslim names to be more trustworthy. Uh, now it's the other way around. And uh, it's very unfortunate that people have such a bad image of Muslims. Um, so he said, probably not because same reasons. You know, you've got to make an impression. Da, 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 da. And I went, okay, cool. Um, then I went on. Um, because my mom worked at North Sydney, I, I ended up working for People Bank. And I'm still working with the same guys from People Bank. So five years later, uh, my boss at People Bank at the time says, I mean, I'm moving on. I said, okay, when do we go? 
And like I said, you don't work for companies, you work for people. You know, these big corporates, it really does, you know, people fall in love with the name. It is pretty cool to have a cool name behind you and it does have its benefits. But ultimately, you're going to spend eight hours a day with that team. You got to make sure that team is right for you. And they understand you. They understand your sense of humor. Um, they can take you when you're low, when you're high. At People Bank, my my team, uh, so Chris and Dylan, they ended up moving and opening their own company, which is Digitalent now. I didn't feel like doing that. I felt like going to Tur- Turkey and around the world and travel for a good four or five months. And I was like, I'm I'm, ha- I'm having a break. I'm not doing this. I ended up working in one company didn't work out because they didn't give me the flexibility I needed uh, and Chris was always on my case saying Amy come work for Digitalent at this time my archery club was in full swing um, so I really needed flexibility and flexibility is very hard to f- or was very f- hard to find at that time especially in the recruitment industry it's a sales job you need to be on the floor you need to feel the buzz the energy you know and um, you know it, it does it does have its benefits um, but my main my main sale for working at Digitalent and my my main thing was working with people I love and I know but also the flexibility it was work from anywhere from day one um, and work your own hours it, it was you weren't limited to nine to five you didn't have to work those hours you could work three hours in the morning six hours or seven hours after after that as long as you got the job done. Exactly. Because recruitment is heavily result-oriented, and like any sales job. So um, it didn't really matter. And the people you work with, I've worked with them for five years. So I know them inside out. They know how I work. You know, I know how they work. We know how to communicate. So it was a very, very good transition. And uh, they give me like four days a week. I can work um, four days a week where I have my Wednesdays off to do my archery thing and train my horse if i am applying for a job and i send you my cv Mm -hmm. or you look me up on linkedin and you've seen that i've been at a few companies for like five months six months what is the first thought that comes to your mind depends who which recruiter you speak to and also it really depends in the in the sort of industry you're in um Tenure is increasingly becoming less important. Um, it's more, you know, if you if you let's say working for startups and startups don't work out quite often, it's understandable that people move around. But if if you have moved around and you don't have the references or you don't have the 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 th- the kind of word behind you to say, oh well, he didn't work out because he didn't turn up on time or you know basics like that, that's a different story. You can easily get to to the bottom of that. But if you sincerely join the company and you found out they want a contract with an alcohol company you don't want to work for, a gambling company you don't want to be with, then to me that's a very valid excuse. And I think people are getting more um, open-minded about that. Whereas in the past, they weren't. They would look at tenure as something to be proud of. But nowadays they're like, well, I'm not a tree. I, don't have to, I can move. I don't have to stay here if I don't like it. So people are realizing that. And I think the word nomad is becoming more and more prevalent while in the past we're like you know of course you got to generate baby boomers generation z and all the different generations whatever you want to call them but i think as the generations progress i think tenure is becoming a lot less important and another thing that's becoming a lot less important i think is education 
I think universities long term, I think 10, 20 years down the track, they're also going to change vastly, massively. In the West, people are starting to realize that the model of education that we have at the moment, which is very outdated, very um, archaic in its in its design. Look at school. School was designed to teach people how to work in factories. That's school. Um, if you really want to make autonomous thinkers, you have to go back to the prophetic system, which is the um, mentorship program, where you sit at the you know at the knee of a scholar or a mentor, whatever you want to call it. And then learn from them directly. And then you go to another one and you learn from them directly. And that gives you the best quality of education that you can possibly get. That's why a lot of people are going to homeschooling. Because of that, teaching their kids one-on-one interaction. And you, if, you, if any parent is shopping around for schools, let's say, you go to any school, the, the number one thing you look for is the size of the classroom. The smaller the classroom, the better it is for your kid. For my kid, I want as much interaction with the teacher as that I can get because that means my kid's going to learn more. And they don't need that, to be in a school for that long. But yeah, we kind of segued in a massive topic there. But um, do I look at it? Yes and no. It is important. It's not like it's not important, but it's not a be-all, end-all, definitely. A lot of recruiters will, a lot of old-school recruiters will look at that and, and think immediately negative. Um, but do you want those sort of recruiters to represent you? Probably not. Um, it, not if you're kind of a starting up or trying to find your way in the world. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. You told us a story about how you had to change your name, and that's quite a big challenge. I hope it doesn't happen anymore. I hope. But I'd be lying to myself if I'd believed that it doesn't happen, happen anymore. What other challenges have you faced being a Muslim? About the the name thing, actually, um, it wasn't only from non-Muslims that I had um, challenges from. So I've I've actually been burnt more by Muslims, unfortunately, um, because I used to just tell people, "Hey, um, I used to talk like, hey, my name's Ahmed. If it's Mustafa or Muhammad or someone a candidate that applied for one of my roles, I'd be like, hey, Mustafa." Or, hey, Abdullah, or whatever his name was. Um, my name's Ahmed. When we met for interview, I'd, I'd try and give them a quote-unquote special treatment. But it, it really went back to bite me. Because the moment they found out I'm Ahmed, they'd say, Oh, bro, can you get me 10K extra on the base? Or can you do this? Or can you do that? I was like, you, you got the offer, what we initially spoke about. What, what are you doing now? Why, why changing the goalpost now? Why are you making it more difficult for me? So they always try to get freebies. And I said to myself, they don't need to be Muslims in order for me to help them. They, they don't need to know that I'm a Muslim in order for me to help them. Which is kind of sad if you think about it. Well, I, I don't. I don't think about it because my goal is, you know, obstacles are the things you see once you take your eye off the goal. My goal is to help them. Right, And if I start thinking about those things, then it'll bring me down. It'll bring my work down. It'll, you know, Because th- this is another important thing. Energy is everything. Time is nothing. People think at work, time, time, time. Time, you can have as much time as you want. If you don't have the energy to do it, you'll just spend that time procrastinating. So energy is everything. And to me, it's very important that my energy levels are 
and, and optimal because and if I if I think about these things then I'll tear myself down you know because recruitment is a very frustrating and a very stressful job or it can be um, so one one time I was I was hiring a team lead and you know it was uh, end of Ramadan and the guy was going through he accepted the role uh, he was in his um, you know um, way out of the last company he calls me up because Ami um, do you mind if we um, postpone it for one week as in my start date and I was like bro it's end of Ramadan what could it be what, what is it going to be he wants to spend Ramadan with his family and probably Eid and then start his new job and I completely understood I said and I just cut cut to the chase and said why is it because it's Ramadan and then you hear a pause on the phone it's like uh how, you know, how do you know? So, bro, I'm a Muslim. I'm fire. I'm fasting, and it's the shortest day in the world. Just start. You know, first, first, I got him off his guard because I told him I'm fasting, and he's like surprised. And second, like he couldn't say no. He was just completely. So he just uh, sucked it up and went. And three days later, he calls me, and he goes, "I mean, this is awesome." I said, "What do you mean?" He goes, "Well, seventy percent of the team is Muslim, and..." We're all having iftar every time together. All like we'll get, bring our own food. And I said, I know. And he's like, Yeah, it's really grass. No, no, I placed him there. <laughs> I was like, yes. So it worked out. But yeah, I said to myself, it, it's not just from the non-Muslims. Actually, it actually protects me more. Not protects me, but it kind of, um, yeah, I suppose protects me even from the harm of the Muslims, which is yeah, you could say unfortunate, but. You know what? At the end of the day, they don't need to know that I'm a Muslim in order for me to help them. Um, they, because ultimately we don't do it for praise. So, do you think you've been successful in achieving what you've set out to achieve? That depends how you define success, uh, right? So, for some people, success is going up corporate ladder. Other people, success is making the most amount of money that you that you can make. Other people's learning, right? If you if you were to gauge me, I was top performing in my team. For example, at People Bank, I was always almost eighty ninety percent of the time top performer in my team in terms of numbers, and that means money. So that's awesome. Um, when I first started at the job, I remember it was open open plan office, <clears throat> and I was sitting close to this this guy who was also an old recruiter at the time. And it was Ramadan, and I was obviously fasting. And you know how it is, like, people are like, you don't eat, and you don't eat, and you don't drink. And, you you know, all these conversations that you have. And I was having one of those with one of the, one of the teammates. And he goes, well, the, the way that Muslims are taught, and he obviously knew about Islam, he was very well read, he said, you're taught to be truthful, honest in your dealings. If you're fasting... And you're not drinking. Are you not giving your employer the full um, right? And that was like, that was a, a question that he probably thought about for a while before he asked. And I went, I just pointed at the board and my name was number one. And he was like, hmm, ah, and he, he got it, you know. And when I, when I kind of had some free time, I spoke to him and said, uh, mate, because I fast, I find that I'm more alert. 
you know, when you eat, you, you get that three or four o'clock coma, <laughs> food coma, that you just hit a wall and you have to have your coffee. I don't have to have that. And I don't have to have lunch. I just work through my day. So actually, it would be benefit my employer more if it was Ramadan every month. One thing about Ramadan is you're either strong, if you have strength, or you're weak. There's no hiding behind this. So if you're weak, then take Ramadan off if you can. But if you're strong, then work harder in Ramadan. Do you know what I mean? Because of these things. You know, you don't want to be pulled up on and hide behind your religion. Um, you, you want to protect your religion. I was having a discussion at work and I said to my team, I said at the time, I said, which one of you have ever been hungry? When was the last time you experienced hunger? Not starvation, but hungry, like proper hungry. Because people immediately, we live in an age of instant gratification and that's getting, it's becoming a, a, a overly used word in our community, instant gratification. But honestly, even, even food, we've, we force our kids to eat. Right? And then we complain that they have no drive. The time is always full. When you don't eat, you get hungry. And when you're familiar with hunger, that is key to success. When you understand because what drives you. So that mechanism is important to fine-tune. A lot of people focus on, let's say, fiqh and aqidah. Right? They, they, they teach people about this is how you believe, this is how you practice. So they, they've got knowledge, they've got uh, amal, but they miss, majority in Australia here, what I've found at least, a lot of Muslims, they miss out on the heart aspect. So what we call in Bosnia, tasawuf. For example, how to clean or cleanse your heart of pride, how to have zuhud. Zuhud, as, you, know, you know what zuhud is. It's like the um, living of, of worldly pleasures, such as food. When you do these things, you automatically gear yourself for success, no matter what you do. If you are going against your desires, your character immediately improves. There's no one who's been successful and had it easy. There's not a single person in this world who's gone and applied for a job and had it easy and worked his way up. There's not a single person that you can show me. And the best example of that is our Prophet He had it the hardest and he also had the most results. So if you are in a difficult situation, know that you were chosen for a difficult situation because you have a lot of potential and that that difficulty, as hard as it is, is going to get turned into success, no matter how you measure it. Success is objective. However you view, is it money or whatever? But if you struggle for something, the results, the more the struggle, the more the results. Just like fasting, just like food, just like time, just like energy, anything in life. The more you struggle, the more you go against your own nafs, the better you're going to do. In this life, but also in the akhirah. It's something that's been completely taken out of the curriculum of our youth. We teach them aqidah. Okay, you believe in Allah, He exists before time. He exists before place was created. He, he was there. He's almighty. He's this, he's this. You know, the typical aqidah that we all taught and as kids. Then you turn, learn about fiqh. And then you taught five times a day pray. Go pray and uh, fast Ramadan. Da, 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 da. And that's it. They don't talk about pride, kibr, riyah, hasad. These three things. They don't talk about it. 
But these three things is what the West calls emotional intelligence. And that is the most valued asset in a person that people look at when they hire. Attitude, emotional intelligence, communication. That's the key for success. In my, anyway, in my, in my uh, opinion. But have I been successful? Yes, I have. Uh, you could say in, in the dunya perspective, yes, I've, I've done really well. Um, and the fact that I can have such flexibility and work with such great people is testament. So I've always worked in, uh, not always, in the beginning I worked for a small company, then I always worked for large corporates with big accounts, but I was always, always generally a hunter mentality in sales. I wasn't always a farmer. You know, in sales you, you've got the hunter that goes out and wins new business and then you've got the farmer that builds on existing accounts. Um, I kind of, I did, I did my own thing. I never had accounts handed to me. So, and that gave me a lot of respect everywhere I went because for some reason people found it odd that you go in and make your own thing happen. And that's my, that's probably one of my um, advice for, for youth because today youth, they're all saying, oh, we don't have leaders. And um, don't wait for a leader. Don't wait for a sheikh. Um, don't wait for the opportunity. Make it. Make your own opportunity. Uh, and if somebody can stop you, then you didn't want it hard enough. You know, making excuses is actually one of the one of the things we're taught in Tasawwuf is when you start making excuses, this is a form of pride. And pride is your enemy. You know, when you start making, oh, I didn't get that. You know, no. If they could stop you, just say, bro, I'm weak. That's it, you know. Don't make excuses. And weakness inherently, people don't like to say, oh, bro, I'm weak. You know, I'm... I'm, I'm Nobody wants to say that, right? So they always blame the other person. But what's the, what is the antidote to weakness? Work. And nobody wants to work. Everybody wants to have, nobody wants to work. And somebody said to me, and I use this, he said, hard times breed strong men. Strong men, they make easy times. Easy times breed weak men. Weak men make hard times. And it's, it's a circle. So um, I think, I, I, but I'm very positive. I think we're in a, in a time where we're in hard times. And I think the, the youth that's up and coming, they're, they're, gain, they're gaining strength. Because the harder the time, it's like the hotter the, me, the, the, hotter the fire, the stronger the metal. So you got to temper. Very positive outlook though, alhamdulillah. From your experience up until now, mm. what are some mistakes you've made that we can learn from? Because I'm one of those people that fit into the category of not having a guide necessarily um, and not kind of having that connection with, so you could say a sheikh or a, or a mentor or someone. When you join a company like People Bank that I used to work for, they have very structured approach to your development, right? But that approach is heavily reliant on your manager wanting you to grow. Now, again, what is growth? More money? Leadership? What do you want? So the, the two um, key things... I was asked is, do you want to be a 
sole contributor, as they say, basically a cash cow? Or do you want to be a management in management or leadership? And I was always kind of driven in the sole, co- sole contributor um, bucket because, you know, it was just good for the team. We always hit the numbers. Everything was great. Um, I made money, so I was quiet. It kind of suppressed me because, yeah, money's great. It's it's a way to many things, but not necessarily a way to happiness. Um, so my, one of my mistakes is not realizing sooner that I had leadership potential. It was only later when I started the Maidan Initiative, uh, which is more community-focused, that I realized, oh, actually, I can, I can lead people and people listen to me. Purely because I didn't have a, someone to kind of guide me. I wouldn't call it a mistake. It was just a... Well, mistakes are learning lessons. That's what mistakes are. I want to learn a bit more about your passions and hobbies. Work is on one side, but what do you do outside of all of that? I run an archery club. It's called Medan Archery Club Australia. And um, we focus on Ottoman archery. So backtracking when I was at People Bank and when, when I finished off at People Bank, um, I lived on a farm. It was taken and... Um, I got to travel um, overseas and study uh, Turkish archery or Ottoman archery. When I came back to Australia, I no longer had a farm, (laughs) so I couldn't shoot or practice um, at home. And all my mates that I usually shoot with and hang and hunt with uh, couldn't do it at, you know, in a suburban place. So we basically out of necessity formed a club but then something greater happened which was i found out about the furusia or futua aspect of of our culture which i didn't know and a whole new door opened for me so um i always liked sunna uh, sunna sports like wrestling archery riding uh, running and swimming but I tried to do wrestling, ended up mangling my knee, didn't work. Allah closed the door for me, but another one opened, which was archery. So you don't, you know, it is depressing for a person who is very able-bodied not to be able to move, but don't let that get you down because it's a sign. So look for other things, never give up. And um, I ended up taking up archery. I did did 10 years of compound shooting. If you don't know about archery, compound is that um, mechanical-looking contraption. It's very rewarding, but it's extremely accurate, and it's heavily reliant on equipment. Um, Eastern archery is heavily reliant on building the archer. So I ended up, we we ended up forming a a club uh, in Brinjeli, and that club's just taken off exponentially because there's we found that there's a huge need in the community for building people through essentially sport or a discipline or an art. So we formed Maidan Archery Club and uh, we've been going very strong. Now it's at a stage where, um, you know, the key thing for me is transitioning long-term into making this my, my passion, becoming my work so that I can dedicate myself fully and, and wholly into this. And Digitalent have been really, really good with that because they gave me the flexibility, they understand my goals. It's all transparent and um, 
they 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 even support me in everything I do. So it's very rare to find people or companies that have that ethos behind them. Um, so I'm very fortunate. So what we do is we we teach Ottoman archery, which is essentially archery designed for horseback, that involves horseback archery. So you need a horse. When you do a horse, so you're combining two sunnas at once. You're doing archery and riding. Uh, so you need a horse. When you have a horse, it takes you time. So that's why on Wednesdays, I generally go see her, feed her, make sure she's good. We train. We train at least twice a week. And then two other days, my daughter trains with her, my my, my wife and my daughter. Um, but essentially, Maidan is kind of an answer to what I think the youth need, which is... For want of a word, teaching men how to be men, uh, or and men here doesn't mean just for men, it means for women too. So it's not just, let's say, it's not just for boys, it's for girls. We know in Arabic they say uh, rujulia, they, they mention this term. Rujulia, manlyhood, isn't uh, gender specific. For example, Aisha radiallahu anha, she had sifat rujulia, she had uh, strength. And strength in a woman is something that's beautiful. As men, we should um, strive to marry women who are beautiful and not look for weakness in a woman, right? If you, all these things, you know? So that's what we try to kind of focus on teaching the youth. So we're done. I know that there's no point fixing broken men. We, we need to build a generation in moving forward and Maidan is, is very much focused on building that new generation and intertwining a spiritual development character into the sport of archery, writing and all the prophetic uh, arts or disciplines. What are your thoughts on, well, one working from home, how are you staying productive? How do you, how do you find the time and, you know, with Maidan on one side, with kids, with family, then working from home? And then do you think this is something that is sustainable long-term? From day one, Digitalent has forced working from anywhere policy. So from a cafe, from the beach, from the horse stables, it doesn't matter where you are. As long as your energy levels are high, you go to the place that improves your energy levels. And thank God that We've got pretty much reception everywhere. You can go anywhere and work these days. And I think that's a blessing. The problem is that it's all in the person's mind. When you say working from home, it doesn't mean working from home. It means work from anywhere. So if home is not right for you and your sister's house is across the road or you can go elsewhere where you can be productive, then go there because it should be working from anywhere. It's very important because... Your environment is is key. Um, I was telling you earlier, I've got a little office and I'm kind of away from everything, but it doesn't stop my daughter coming in because she misses me. She, she comes and looks at me and I'm on the phone to a CTO. You know, these guys are very demanding and you've got to be on, your, on the ball. Um, so working from home has its downsides as well which is a lot of distractions. Uh, sometimes motivation is not up there, especially in a sales job. But it doesn't, you're not a tree, you, you can move. So if you're fi- not finding the motivation, close your laptop, go away, sit in a park, do it there. And you'll find that it'll rub off on you. 
So I, is it challenging? It does, it does have its challenges, just like work. You've got people that come to your desk and want to have a chit-chat, and you've got all these you know, CVs to submit, and you're like, dude, I've got to do this. I haven't got time. I love you, but I can't. And um, people don't understand. So the, and there's the politics of the office. So office has distractions of its own. But I think this whole working from home is a very positive um, move. And I think despite COVID-19 being a horrible event or catastrophe, uh, it has a silver silver lining, which is traffic's gone down. A lot of companies are making more money because of the uh, cancelling contracts for rent. They They realize they don't need so much office space. And real estate is booming as well because now all the farms are getting scooped up. People are realizing I can actually live with a big, bigger block of land and I don't need a small house. I just need an office or something like that. So it has a lot of benefits. So it has forced a lot of companies um, that were on the brink of giving that flexibility but just didn't have the drive. It drove those guys to give people flexibility. But believe it or not, there are still companies out there who force people to go into the office. They're just not flexible at all. And they've become completely exposed. And they're going to really suffer because they will not find the right candidates. Right now, in this climate, they will not get the top 30%, 40% because the employee standards have completely changed. This whole COVID thing has turned everything on its head in terms of working from home. So it's definitely a good thing for the right people. But some people, they, they want to escape. They want to go to work. You know, as some people say, I've got five kids at home and I go to work to relax. Not because they don't work, but because it's so hard at home for them. So and I, I completely understand. Um, so I think the, move, the way moving forward is going to be very much a lean, uh, flexible environment with stand-up desks and uh, companies not having dedicated offices, but more like hotspots around the city where people actually can go in, work. Um, those ones with the five kids or, or nightmarish scenario, they can go and have that um, time away to do their stuff. But on the other hand, you've got people that work better at night, so they can work at night. Or just Flexibility is going to be key. So I think, I think the ones who are... Flexible are going to be doing the, they're going to be the most successful. I have another thing to add. Over communicate. Because you don't see people when you, when you talk to them, you have to over communicate. And you, you cannot be, my first mistake I did when I joined Digitalent is think that I'm bothering my colleagues if I send them a, a Slack message or a WhatsApp message or give them a quick call. I quickly realized that that's not the case because they're so far away from me. Over-communicating is key. So not just communicating, but really over-communicating. It can be annoying, but it's, it, it is, I think, in my opinion, it is one of the most essential things from working from home is um, over-communicating. And that's why a lot of people, a lot of managers have had to go through training on how to manage people remotely 
It's about the communication. You can't just walk up to the desk and, hey, let's go for a walk. Let's go for a coffee. We'll catch up and talk and have that interaction. You can't. You're always going to be glued to your screen. You're going to have to always be available. You're going to have to know your um, your employees' timetables, <laughs> when their kids go to work, go to, go to school, which kid, what's happened, are they in hospital? Yes, as a manager, you have to do more work, but you get a much more meaningful and close relationship with your employee at a distance. So the, the words in, uh, in Arabic poetry that they mention, uh, they say the one who is close is not necessarily close to your heart. And the one that's far, it's not necessarily far from your heart. It, you know, so your managers actually have to now really get to know you. So that brings another uh, dynamic. What are some of your tips for continuous improvement, be that in a personal setting or Islamic or professional setting? Being a successful Muslim and being a successful human are one and the same thing. Uh, the success in, in Islam is measured about, you know, around spiritual development. But a lot of the scholars mentioned that you can't be spiritually sound if your body is crook. So you gotta work, you got to look at it from a, a holistic standpoint. My personal development, I believe, started with the, with the first hardship. I think the more you throw yourself into challenging positions, the more you, th- you take on more challenges, the more you develop. It's that easy. On a personal note, I take, obviously, because I'm a Muslim, I take a lot of inspiration from Prophet Muhammad, or some of his companions like Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. But I, I was oblivious to those until I really started progressing my archery because then I really started getting spiritual. By spiritual, I don't mean just praying five times a day. I was already praying five times a day, fasting in Ramadan. But I was just doing it mechanically. I wasn't tasting it. When you start tasting it, you know, that, that, that sweetness, it's different. When you taste it, then you get emotionally invested in what you do. And a Muslim can't do anything without being spiritual. He can't help it. If he's a, if he's a successful Muslim, right, he has to make his work also count for that. So my key thing is, when it comes to development, looking at the lives of the Sahaba from a holistic point, not just abstain from the dunya and don't work. No, they worked very hard. Look at their management styles. Look at Abu Bakr, how he managed. Look at Omar, how he managed. Look at the different temperaments. You've got everything in our deen. You just have to look. For example, psychometric um, analysis. You know, we put people through psychometric testing. I didn't know that we have this in Islam. I didn't know that we have four temperaments in Islam. And I didn't know that those four temperaments were connected to the four Khulafa al-Rashidun. I didn't know that. I didn't know that uh, Omar radiallahu anhu ascribed to like a fiery uh, element. Then you've got air, you've got water, you've got uh, earth. And you look at their lives. The point of all that, if you look at it from a Islamic or a, or a Muslim lens, you will see that the key to, to it isn't, um, isn't that fire is superior to water or the other way. The key to all these things is finding balance. So personal development is always about balance in our eyes. How do I achieve 
balance. And once you achieved balance, then you are at your best. When you are at your best, that's when you are developing. If you are slated towards just one, you're not developing. So let's say if you're a Muslim and you're only thinking about your spirit, your, your soul, and your body is frail and you, you can't even carry two shopping bags for an old lady, then you've got problems. A strong body and a strong mind or, or soul. It doesn't work only one way. So that means you're not balanced. So you can't go and lecture someone about dunya if you're not successful in both. So my key was as well, I didn't, I didn't have a sheikh. So when you look at, um, people are waiting for people to come and, and rescue them. Damsel in distress sort of thing. Um, you need to be your own sheikh. You, if, you, if you don't have a sheikh, then be your own. That doesn't mean go on YouTube and research religion. It means be the change you want to see in others and Allah will put a person in your life that will help you. Or put people, many people in your life that will somehow connect and help you. And good sailors are never made in ports. So you have to go out there and really test your metal and then you will see it. If you're just sitting at home, twiddling your thumbs, saying no one's coming, then that, that's what I'm talking about. you got to actually go out there, dig, find, work, and you will see doors open that you never thought imagine, you could never imagine possible. A lot of people have lost jobs, unfortunately. What are some of your tips to increase my chances of getting a job? I don't think that getting a job in a hard time or getting a job in a good time changes perspective of a um, assertive manager or a recruiter, headhunter, call us what you might. I think attitude, resilience and good communication is key in that order. Um, because you can't teach attitude. It's built. It's built in your character. You need to build it from a young age. You need to build discipline, you know, uh, motivation, all those things. Uh, I think they're very important. Resilience is, let's say, you knock on five doors, all are, all are closed. You knock on ten, all are closed. A hundred, one opens. So your resilience is you realizing, I knock on ten doors, one, uh, it's too hard, it's not happening. But you knock on a hundred and you see one open, you're like, Oh, so I have to do a hundred for one to open. So I need to do a thousand for ten opportunities. Cool. So that goes back to attitude. And then obviously communication. If your comms are no good, it's going to be very hard for you to find a job in this uh, in this climate. Uh, and comms are not just your ability to articulate English words and them coming out your mouth. It is communication to effectively come across to your audience. We are talking about earlier a, a question, let's say, um, when you first meet a CEO or, or owner of a company, they ask you, tell me about yourself. They don't have, they don't have time to see, read about your CV. You're there to get a job. You have to understand that, again, ego aside, put your ego to the side. I know you're a great guy, um, but again, ego is your enemy. So go against your nefs. Prepare something. You're the employee. You're going in. Uh, you're giving the due respect to the person that's re interviewing you. Also part of Islam. Giving people their haq is 
Allah put him in this position, so acknowledge his position. He is the CEO, show him respect. Of course, don't be arrogant. Again, part of our religion. So you go in, you do your research. You don't go in and t when he asks you, tell me about yourself. So you just basically recite your CV. You go in and find out, why am I here? What problem am I solving? What's the headache that I'm going to take away, that he's going to pay me to take away from him? And when you go in and you talk about that headache, you've already got his attention. Because your communication isn't your ability to say the words, but your ability to tune in to what the question is, what the problem is, and your ability to articulate how you can solve that problem may mean the difference between you getting a job and not getting a job. So communication is key. That's what I mean by communication. I don't mean getting 7.5 on IELTS test or whatever. I don't care. Certification, I don't care about certification, right? You don't need to know English to communicate. You don't need to know English very well to communicate. Good communicators, and I always say this to my students, you learn how to communicate from a horse. Why? Because a horse doesn't speak a language. You have to be intuitive enough to know when a horse is frustrated because it doesn't speak. So you've got to monitor all these different senses and not just what's coming out the mouth. You have to feel their heartbeat. You have to feel their posture. You have to see their face. You have to become intuitive. And that is communication. And we're again taught the Prophet ﷺ enters a masjid and you've got people like Abu Bakr Omar in one circle and there's a young boy on the side sitting. The Arabs had this before. Today they don't. They had this. They would see someone and know when they're sad. They know when they're down. Prophet ﷺ walks up to this boy and he goes, Wallahi ana uhibbuk. Three times. By name. And this boy completely his aura his demeanor everything about him changes because who, who am I for him to walk up to me and do this why do you see great leaders do the exact same thing they walk up to people that are the least important to them they walk up to them and say you're key to this organization perfect example you know the they use that about uh, a NASA uh, cleaner there was a cleaner in the in a NASA uh, office and they asked him what do you do here the president walks up and goes, what do you do here, sir? He goes, well, I help, I help uh, send rockets up into the space. But he's a cleaner. It doesn't matter. He's a cleaner, but his attitude is, bro, I'm here to send rockets up. And I'm going to do this cleaning as great as I can because that is reliant on rockets going up in the space. That's the sort of, in, that's the sort of attitude you, you want to have. And um, you can't... Um, you, and that's in, intrinsic to the way that you communicate. So my advice would be th these key, key things are attitude and build resilience. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and found it valuable. I'd love your support and feedback. You can do so by subscribing to the show and following it on Instagram at Corporate Majlis and sharing it with family and friends. Let me know what you thought of this episode as your feedback helps me tailor your experience for the better. Till next week, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.